Whoa, there we go. Well, thank you, worship team. Hey, you just heard a song that we are introducing to you that we will be moving toward Easter to you, so we hope that that song will become more comfortable to you as the, uh, the weeks go by. Great introduction this morning, powerful message in that song. Um, thanks again for making it here this morning. You have found us at the beginning of a new series called A Thousand Words, and I'm always excited about new series because I just am. I get that way, all right? I get a little tired of hearing myself talk about the same things after several weeks, and we're ready to roll into something new. And this series I'm excited about because it gives us a picture for all you picture and visually oriented people. It gives us a picture, very simple picture, of what in the world it begins to look like to follow Jesus. Now, if you are interested in that, if you've ever wondered in your life, what in the world does that actually look like to follow Jesus? Here we go for seven weeks. We're going to follow Jesus through his journeys in the the New Testament time. We're going to look at seven different stories that he told. They're parables, and they're actually word pictures, each one of them. And they're given to us to try to help us figure out how do I follow this man, Jesus, this God man, Jesus. It is not, these are not parables about the future, about what is to come. These are not parables about anything else other than this is what it looks like to understand the heart of Jesus and how he interacted with people and understand if I'm going to be someone who is growing in a relationship with Christ, what do I do? All right, so here at Grace Point, we talk about our mission is to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You've heard that before if you've been around here. And the question becomes, how do I know, of course, when I'm doing that? What does that mean to do that? How do I know if I'm on mission? What are the steps that I need to take to do this, all right? Um, I don't know uh, how many of you have ever changed a tire before. Let me ask that question. All right, how difficult is it to change a tire on a scale of 1 to 10? 10. One is the answer, right? It's not a difficult task. So this past, maybe two weeks ago, I, uh, I had that task, this little mission given to me if I had to change a tire on my Volkswagen Jetta because it was, had a slow leak. The mission was very simple, change a tire. I've actually changed tires before, believe it or not, with 100% success because it's not that hard, right? You go out there and there are certain steps that you take to change a tire, And it's not difficult, the mission is clear, and actually the steps are clear, and you know when you're succeeding and moving along and and getting the mission accomplished. And so I'll go out there and I'll first of all kind of break the seal of the lug nuts, I'll kind of pop them before I jack the car up, jack the car up, take the nuts off, pull the tire off, put it back on, put the nuts on, drop it, tighten it a little bit more, and then we're in business, right? I mean, that's pretty pretty standard fare, and you kind of know along the way that I'm getting the mission accomplished because the steps are there for me to do. Except if you're me, and I go out to my car and I take the nuts off and the tire is still on the car. In fact, the tire's not even coming off the car, and so I decide I'm going to put my hands around the tire and start just wiggling a little bit. I'm like, there has to be some trick here. The car is up. All the nuts are off. I know the mission. Take the tire off. I know the steps. I've done this dozens of times before. And the tire stuck on the car. So I turn around, literally, I'm kicking the tire with my foot and it won't come off. Like, you've got to be kidding me. I get a two by four and I get a hammer and I'm hitting the two by four on the back side of the tire to try to pop it off the car. No luck. I drop the weight of the car on the tire with no nuts on it to try to break the seal. Top it back up again. No luck at all. And I'm thinking, good grief. How hard is it to change a tire? And so, you know what I had to do? I finally had to Google how to change a tire 
on a jet. And I'm like, I feel like such a fool. It's like how to change a tire. But isn't it true that somewhere along the way, when we think we have a pretty simple mission, there can be things that get in the way and they keep us actually from accomplishing what we say what we would like to accomplish. And it seems pretty simple to say, I want to become a fully devoted follower of Christ until you get out there and you try it. And then stuff happens that you don't anticipate. And then you wonder, what do I do now because I wasn't expecting that? There's a roadblock here I didn't anticipate. My girlfriend is reacting this way, and what is the godly response? You know, my spouse is pushing me here, and my kids are pushing me there, and I'm not sure about my future, and the money thing is making me wonder, and I don't know the right thing to do when I hit a roadblock like this. What do I do? And if you're anything like me, actually getting a visual, getting a picture of what some principles are for following Christ can be very, very helpful in times when I feel stuck on what should seem to be a pretty simple mission. Now, ultimately, I did get the tire off of the car, truthfully, by driving the car out of the garage and into the garage, out of the garage and into the garage and out, and then until finally the third time, it finally the seal popped and it, and it came off. It was just kind of seared together with road grime and rust and dirt and everything. It was so stuck on. It was amazing. And finally, I felt... Of course, I was angry, all right, at the time. Truth be told, I, had, I was angry. I was out of patience. Um, but I was also like, finally. And, and also I'm thinking, this is why I'm not a mechanic. This is why I don't do that. So we are going to cover for seven weeks stories, pictures that are given to us to kind of help us move along toward the mission of how do I become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, especially when I kind of get stuck. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to a gospel uh, of Luke. Um, when, we, when I talk about a gospel, I mean there are four, the first four books of your New Testament, which is in the right third of your Bible, we call the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the third book in the New Testament written by a follower of Jesus named Luke. He was a doctor, pretty smart guy. He had some pretty good things to say. And his interest, as he'll write at the beginning of his gospel, is that he's writing Luke to um, record an orderly account of things so that we would understand that what is happening is actually real history in real time. So his interest is a historical, orderly, systematic approach to the life of Jesus. And so if you have people who are wondering about the legitimacy of Christ or chronology or whatever it might be about what actually happened, Luke's interest is in protecting and creating a, an account that kind of tells the story of Jesus from that perspective. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, um, there's one, you may have found it already in the pew right near you there. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you uh, as well. And you'll find Luke just... Um, in the, uh, on the right third of your Bible there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 5, um, and each of our stories is going to come from the Gospel of Luke um, during this series. We're going to follow Luke through his account um, of Jesus telling these parables. Luke chapter 5, um, and to set the scene, our parable actually begins in verse 36, but to back it up before we get to 36 is it won't make sense unless we back up to the context and understand what's happening. We're going to back it up to verse 27. And I, I just want to tell you that to me, this, this passage um, is so convicting and is so difficult for me. It's actually very powerful for me personally, um, and, I, and I hope it can be challenging for you too, because there's so much happening at a, at, at a pretty big level here in the text. So Luke is writing, um, beginning in verse 27, he says this, uh, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. 
And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. I'm going to pause it here. I'm going to pause it every couple verses this morning. Uh, This seems like an innocuous enough story. It seems like a harmless enough story. But in truth, if we actually stop and think about this for a minute, this is actually incredibly, incredibly, incredibly profound and very, very challenging. Just these verses alone. What we read is, okay, Jesus walks by and sees a guy named Levi. And he's like, hey, Levi, come follow me. And Levi's like, good idea. I'll leave my stuff. Let's go eat at my house, have some people over, and let's kind of celebrate this new thing we have going on. It happens all the time around here. People have parties. They enjoy having company with one another. Kind of big deal. This, this is categorically, categorically different. This is profound. This is so profound. Jesus, Jesus, the, the God-man Jesus, the perfect, righteous, sinless Jesus, is walking along and, and he sees a man named Levi. And Levi's occupation is that of a tax collector. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you'll know that tax collectors are put in the same category. They're actually just slightly below the category of sinners. That that tax collectors and sinners are kind of in the same category, and these are people who um, are considered to be kind of the, the bane of social existence. These are people who you actually, if you can avoid them, you avoid them. I mean, you have to pay a tax collector, so that makes it even worse that you are obligated, and usually that tax collector has some kind of relationship in your family or in your extended family, and they've kind of betrayed the family or betrayed the line for the government, and then they're going to extort taxes from you. And so there's this whole relational betrayal that you feel one of our own is you know, serving the, the big government and they're taxing us and then they're exorbitant tax and then I can do nothing about that. They have no conscience. They have no idea how much it costs to put my children through school. Right? They have no idea how much health care is. They have no idea how much it costs to change a tire you know, in, in the New Testament times. They have no idea about the cost of the average man and they're exorbitant and they don't care and their conscience is seared and they can't even come to the temple with it. I mean, they don't even worship the same way we do. And so people who were spiritual, People who wanted to honor God do not associate with tax collectors. They avoid them because a tax collector makes you impure. Hanging out with the tax collectors makes you a problem. And the first of all, it's really this three little this little three-letter word is so important in verse 27. I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss this little thing. After this, verse 7, 27, Jesus went out and what's the next word? He went out and and saw a tax collector. And I, I don't know about you, but, but listen. Isn't it true that we don't see the people that we don't want to see? Isn't it true in, in your life and in my life that there are some people that we would prefer not to see? Isn't it true there are some people that just believe so differently and live such immoral lives in our mind that we think, I don't even want to, if I don't see them, I don't have to think about them. If I don't see them, I'm not obligated to help them. If I don't notice them, I don't have to care for them. Isn't that just the way it is? that I don't see the people because I choose to think I I need to be separate from and removed from the people who might actually need me the most. And it's really compelling that, first of all, Jesus saw the tax collector. And in response to seeing, he said, follow me. Interesting. Jesus didn't say, leave your ways, stop being a tax collector, He just said, follow me. Where you are right now, follow me. And then here's the interesting thing. The tax collector, who would have already felt um, 
pushed away by religious people who have already felt that religious people don't like me and I don't really like them, that's okay, we just kind of live, we learn to live that way, that this tax collector actually liked Jesus enough that he said, you know what, I'm going to have a feast and a banquet in my home and I want you to come. And Jesus went. And there were actually more tax collectors there. And there was actually also sinners there. And Jesus went to their place. And uh, now I want you to, you don't have to use your imagination a little bit, but I want you to think about this for a minute. When Jesus gets to this great banquet at his house, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now what do you do at a banquet? We eat, right? We, we drink, right? We put things in our bodies at a place like this that maybe you wouldn't put in your body if you went to a, a feast from the Pharisees, right? I mean, do you think that banquets with tax collectors and sinners would be the same feel and atmosphere as a banquet held by the high priest and his priestly line? I mean, do you think it might be the same feel? Do you think maybe there'd be some differences with what it might feel like to say, I'm going over for my Super Bowl party, I'm not going to the pastor's house, (laughs) I'm going to the person's house who's never been in church for a long time, who doesn't have the same moral code. And there are going to be other people like that there, and I'm going to be there for that Super Bowl party. And there may be things that they do, and there may be jokes that they tell, and there may be things that they drink, and things that they eat, and ways that they carry on that may not be the way that they carry on over at the pastor's house. But that's where you're going to find me, over here. And what do you think the religious people felt about that? And here's what the Pharisees say, verse 30. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, we're offended by your behavior. And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. This gets a little uncomfortable. That the religious leaders are offended and they say, give us an answer. If you're a religious leader, religious leaders don't do what you're doing, Jesus. They don't go to those Super Bowl parties, right? They don't go out at that time. They don't do that. They go over here in this way. They're not a part of that culture. In fact, we don't even see those people. But you're over there, and we're frankly offended by that. Why do you do it? Why do you do that? The right thing, if you want to be a religious leader, the right thing for you to do is to join the religious leaders over here. Why do you, why do, you do this? We're offended by this. And here's what Jesus said. Here's my translation. Jesus says, you don't understand what God cares about. I'm here to invite people to turn to God who are not hearing the message from you. You don't, you don't understand what God cares about. I'm here to tell people to turn to God who are not hearing the message from you. Now, he didn't use it in those words, but those are my words. That Jesus says, I, I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repent. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And the Pharisees, feeling that they're in a little bit of a, 
a fight with them, a little bit of, they got a little bit of a hit on the right hook there on the chin on that response, like, mm, okay, well, they're like, we can hit back too, so we're going to come with the left one, all right, we're going to come and give you a little left hook, and he said, all right, all right, here's what they say in verse 33, they said to him, give him a little, little hit back, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. And don't miss this principle here. What they're saying is, listen, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. In other words, the, the, the bar for spirituality, if you want to grow to become like God, If you want to grow in your devotion to God, you fast more. You don't feast more. If you want to grow in your devotion to God, you need to be more religious. You need to be less connected to people who are outside of this. What the Pharisees had done is they had taken the Old Testament command of one day of fasting on the Day of Atonement, and they had turned it around into a a heavy religious burden. They added that they needed to fast four times the year, not just one time of the year. So four separate fasting days, not just one. They also added that every Monday and Thursday, if you were going to be a religious person, you needed to fast. As a Pharisee, they would fast every Monday and Thursday. And so can you imagine what that's like? That's their life. In fact, that's how they interpret devotion to God. That God is most pleased with me when I am most consistent in my religion toward God. I fast every Monday and Thursday, and I know the Old Testament only calls for one day of fasting, but I got four in addition to every Monday and Thursday. And here comes Jesus, and he, instead of telling his disciples to fast, he's like, let's go eat and drink at that Super Bowl party, and not at that one. And they're like, you don't get it, do you, Jesus? That's not what people do who are devoted to God. People who are devoted to God spend their time showing their devotion by fasting. Even John's disciples did that. And Jesus says, you maybe don't get it, do you? He says in verse 34, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? In other words, I am God in the flesh in front of you and you don't get it. The entire way that we grow and relate to God is changing right in front of them. Jesus is coming and and showing by his choice to connect with Levi and the tax collectors and the Pharisees that there is something wrong with the system and the way that the Pharisees are used to connecting with God. And the Pharisees are fighting back and punching back. And Jesus, to try to drive it home, now he tells a story. And now he gives a picture. Because now they're kind of out there trying to change a tire and the nuts are off but the tire's not coming off and they're stuck. And he sees the stuckness in them and he's like, let me give you a picture. Let me give you a picture of what I mean by this. And let me tell you just a little story. And so he tells them this parable in verse 36. He says, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst 
the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. Jesus tells this parable in the story in the backdrop of feasting. He begins by saying, if you're going to go to a banquet, if you're going to go out and you have an old garment that's kind of ripped, you don't go into the closet and say, you know, I, used, I really like this shirt. There's one like it. I'm going to cut the sleeve off of that and sew it onto this one. Now, number one, that is foreign to our world today. We're like, the shirt is torn. We throw it out and buy a new one. Not so much there. There was a little more garmenting. I don't know what's the right word for that. All right, a little more fixing, sewing, and all that that goes on. Not for us. So he's like, no one does that because it doesn't match. You can't get the new garment to look like the old because it's faded. The old one is faded and the new one just doesn't match. It doesn't look right. And, by the way, by doing that, you also ruin the new one. So you've actually accomplished nothing at all. And then he gives this imagery of the old wine and new wineskins. No one does that. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins because it'll break and then you actually won't have any wineskins or new wine. And so as I look at this passage, I have a... um, an assumption about what Jesus is saying. My assumption is this, that the new way is what he is here to bring about. That he's here to bring about the new covenant. He's here to bring about a new way to connect to God. Because the new is better. But as I looked at the passage more, I began to wonder if the new actually is better and if that's what he meant. Because new isn't always better than old, is it? Old is sometimes better than new, right? So, to play this out, let's actually play a game together quick. Let's play the Would You Rather game. Okay. Would you rather, and let's do this by a show of hands to just have some fun this morning. Would you rather put on old sweaty socks or new clean socks? Old socks? New socks. All right, that's pretty easy. Would you rather, um, would you rather drink old milk or new milk? Old milk. New milk. All right. Would you rather... Um, Go see an old movie or a new movie? Mmm. Uh-huh. Would you rather get advice about marriage from someone who is old in marriage or someone who is new in marriage? So here's the categories. You clearly would rather wear new socks than old stinky ones. You clearly rather drink new milk than old milk. There are times when new is clearly better than old, no question about it. There are times when we're not sure if new is better than old. Like, do I go see a new movie or an old movie? I don't know. Uh, It depends. Like, the new movie that just is simply a matter of, hey, I can do 3D and I'm going to show it. I have no plot structure or or character development. I can just do 3D, so let's just do 3D movie for the fun of doing 3D movie. Like, that doesn't carry the complexity of an older movie that actually has plot structure and character development, actually is engaging to to you, right? So, but what do I do? Is it old or new? Uh, Depends, right? Depends. Let's talk about the movie. Maybe old is better. Maybe new is better. Would you rather get marital advice from someone who is old in marriage or new in marriage? The answer would clearly be if you're thinking old in marriage, because they've actually made it. I mean, new, that's fine. I'll listen to you because you're married and maybe I'm not. But if you've been married 50 years, I'm buying what you're selling. Tell me what you have. So there are times in life when new is clearly better than old, sometimes when it's kind of, we're not sure, and sometimes when old is clearly better than new. Let me do one more would you rather. Would you rather, uh, maybe would you rather is wrong. Let me, let, me, let me get out of would you rather for a minute so that we don't get too excited about this. Okay. Which is better? Which is better and understood in the common um, world to be better? Old wine or new wine? Old or new? 
Old wine. You're right. Old wine, absolutely. Aged wine is known to be better. And so here's the deal. Jesus ends his story in verse 39, and he says this. You can look at the text again. He says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. And when I first come to this passage, I first think Jesus' point is that he is bringing something new and the Pharisees' way of doing business is old and outdated. But I actually believe it's the other way around. That what Jesus is actually saying is that I am returning to the old way of doing things and your new way, Pharisees, has added on to what God has intended. You have added a new way of doing business with God that hasn't been the way that God has done business historically that I am bringing to you back the old because everybody knows that the old is better. The old is better. That I believe this is what Jesus is saying, is that God has always been, God has always been in the business of drawing near to those who are far from him. That this is the business that God has always been in, is drawing near to those who are far from him. And that is not new, that is actually very old. That's as old as the Abrahamic covenant. All the way back in the book of Genesis. All the way back before any of these Pharisees even had a thought of existing or memorizing the Pentateuch like they did, even before they had any thoughts of even being on this planet. It is so old that God, through the person of Abraham, said that I will bless all the nations through you. In other words, I will draw all people to me through you. That God has always been historically in the business of drawing people who are far from him to him. He's always been in the business of going near to those who are far from him. The new business, the religious business, is the new stuff that doesn't work. And that is, let me take the old idea of God, one day of fasting, and let me turn it into four holidays, and every Monday and Thursday, here's what we do. This is the new way to relate to God. It's through religion, through your devotion, through your commitment to him. And what that creates, and we know it creates it, is it creates a division between the haves and the have-nots. It creates a separation between those who are religious and those who are irreligious. It helps us who are religious not see the people who are irreligious. It helps us not see those who are immoral. It gives us a reason to say, I'm not going to hang out at their Super Bowl party. I'm not even going to listen. I'm not even going to look at them when I go into work. I'm not even going to pay attention to them in the schoolyard, in the, in the, on the um, playground. I'm not even going to pay attention to them in the cafeteria. I'm not going to listen to their music. I'm not going to go to their movies. I'm not going to engage in the world in which they live because they're tax collectors and sinners. My job is to fast every Monday and Thursday and add a little bit on to what God would want me to do. And Jesus has come here and he's given this incredible, incredible example to people who are very religious and want to be committed to God. And he's saying, my business is that I'm always and historically always have made it intentional to draw near to people who are far from me. And the Pharisees are offended because they're more about fasting. And Jesus is more about feasting with the people who are with him at the time. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful image. And God has said, this is not new. This is old. And everybody knows the old wine is better. It's better than the new. What can we say? A couple questions for you this morning. Who do you relate to most in this story? Think about the characters involved. There's really three. Number one is the Pharisees. Of course, no one wants to relate to the Pharisees, so let's pretend that we don't. But maybe other people do. And then we have Jesus. Well, we can't really relate to Jesus because that's a little bit too prideful, but we might like to say we do that. And then the other group is also the tax collectors and sinners. They're in the story too. 
Those are really kind of the three main players here. The tax collectors and sinners are kind of a passive third group, but they play a role. They play a role of gratitude. Their role is they threw a party. They liked being with Jesus. They were thankful. They were so thankful that they had a banquet that cost a lot of money so that they could bring someone like Jesus into their midst. And they were so thankful. You could tell that they throw a great banquet and enjoy being with Jesus. And part of the question is, do I relate to that? You know, do I see Jesus in the same way? Do I see Jesus as having seen me and come to me and moved to me when I was far from him? That I have a, a gratitude for what he's done for me. The Pharisee story is fairly self-evident. And the Pharisee story are the, are the people who are struggling with this, who will say, you know what? There's certain religious rules that have to be followed, right? There's certain things that Christians wear. There's certain movies that Christians go to and don't go to. There's certain things that Christians drink, okay? And certain things Christians don't drink. There's certain ways that you carry yourself on a Sunday if you're a Christian. Monday through Friday is kind of up to you, but Sunday in particular, here's what Christians do on Sundays. Here's what Christian parents allow their kids to listen to. And so if you're a Christian parent, you should make sure that you fall in line with the rules that we create for you. And the rules that we can create, the rules that we can add on top of, just like the Pharisees added to the Day of Atonement and said, now, not just one, but we want to be ultra committed, so let's add four. And hey, every Monday and Thursday, let's add it on. Let's add it on. And it can create an incredible religious system that helps us to validate our existence, but keeps us from seeing people who are far from God and keeps us from them. And then there's, of course, in the story, there's Jesus, who's willing um, to blow the categories. And it works if you're Jesus. So none of us are Jesus, so we have to acknowledge that. But he's willing to put it all out there and say, you know what, I'm not going to go to that Super Bowl party. I'm going to go to this one. I'm going to go to those who are far from me because I've come for those who are unrighteous, not for the righteous. I come for the people who need a doctor, not for the ones who are well already. Now, this question I have next, and then I want to talk just a little bit more about the implications of this. If this is true, that God has always been in the business of drawing near to people who are far from him, the question becomes to me and you personally, how can I draw near to those who are far from God in my life? If, if you believe somehow that this parable, this event in Jesus' life happened, and there's implications from this, and that maybe I should learn something from this, and maybe this is actually a picture of becoming a fully devoted follower of this man who did this. And I say that I follow him, so what then do I do? If, the, if you believe that's there, the question becomes, what do I do? How do I draw near to people who are far from God in my life? And if you're, you're thinking with me, there, there has to be a pushback. There has to be a pushback. Because many of us have been raised to feel like, I, I have to be careful that I don't cross a line. And therefore, in order to protect myself from crossing that line, I'm going to put several um, lines before that line so I don't even get to that line that I'm afraid I'm going to cross. Because our interest is obedience and holiness and righteousness before God. Well-intentioned. I get it. This is my struggle. I told you at the beginning, this is very personal to me. This is convicting to me. And I, I, I feel the heaviness of this, the, the incredible philosophical difference that Jesus brought to people who are so religious. It is very challenging for me to even share this with you because of the deep implications in my heart and the way that I've been raised, the way I've been shaped. 
And yet I have to wrestle with this. Here's what Jesus did. What do I do with that? Here's what he did. And if I'm honest with you, I find myself often swinging more toward the Pharisee side, often swinging and leaning more toward the, well, they're not religious enough or moral enough or I want to protect holiness and righteousness. If I'm honest with you, that can be a default behavior of mine. And here's a challenge that Jesus lays out right before us, and that is, what is at the heart of what drives you to do what you do? Because for Jesus it was, there are certain rules you have to follow, but listen, at the heart of it was there are people who are far from God that I need to draw near to. There are people who we need to see that we're not seeing. There are people we need to engage that we've been willing to this point not to engage for whatever reason, often for a reason of perceived purity or righteousness that we want to maintain. You know, there are places that Christians won't go Sometimes for right reasons and sometimes not. And that's what I just wanted to say for a moment here. That there's an application of wisdom in the application of this message for you and for me. In other words, what I'm not suggesting is we just open up the doors and go hog wild and forget morality, you know, forget um, wisdom, you know, forget purity. You know, that you should just go do anything that anybody is doing in any amount of excess, in any amount of freedom, without thinking anymore about a responsibility. That's what people will say who will fight against that and say that, well, if you're going to go to this place or that place, it's a slippery slope, it opens a door, and then all of a sudden you're going to go down there and you're going to be whatever. You're going to be wallowing in sin, you're going to be hooked on pornography, hooked on alcohol, you're going to be hooked on lying and cheating, you're going to steal money, you're going to be in jail in like three weeks if you go to that thing. You know? I mean, it just, there can be this fear that if I engage with people who are far from God, my brain is going to go out the window, my, my accountability with other believers is going to go out the window, and I'm just going to be lost in an abyss of, of immoral junk out there. So I better be pure and stay over here. And I'm just noticing that Jesus didn't actually have that approach. It's challenging for me. That Jesus just didn't have that approach. He was like, you know what, there's wisdom that needs to be applied. He wasn't against fasting, for example, but he was against the way the Pharisees fasted. He wasn't against praying, but he was against saying, you know, the way to measure spirituality is by who's the most religious. It's not the way to measure it. He's saying the old wine tastes better than the new, and anyone who's tasted the old knows it's better than the new. And the old says that God has always been in the business. He's always been in the business of drawing near to those who are far from him. And so the question I have to ask is, how can I draw near to people who are far from God? There's some things that I might be able to do that I'm not doing. But there are also some things that I might think, maybe I should do that. And because of my weaknesses, because of my weaknesses in the flesh, I might say, you know what? I can't do that because I can't handle that. And there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom for parents still helping children know what are some healthy limits and boundaries for you as you engage with people who don't know Christ. There's still healthy balances for that. But the driver is not so that you can maintain purity and, and a religion, but the driver is so that I can figure out how do I move closer? How do I draw near to people who are far from God? This is what drove Jesus, and this is what I believe he's saying in this parable. The old way is better.
And if a picture is worth a thousand words, Jesus paints a picture. He paints a picture of followers of him who say, we want to be in the same business that God has been in forever. That I want to figure out through wisdom, through discussion, through prayer, I want to figure all that out and say, how do I draw near to those who are far from God? Who do I need to see that I haven't seen? Who do I need to engage with that I haven't engaged with? Whose home do I need to go to that I haven't gone to? Whose party do I need to attend that I've been afraid to attend? What do I need to do at work, my family, to move near in wisdom and in love for people who are far from God? Because this is the picture that Jesus gives. And that is a picture that is well worth a thousand words. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, story here in the Gospel of Luke and the challenge that it is and the tension it creates in us, if we're honest, of wanting to be people who move near to those who are far from you, but also being afraid of what it will mean for maybe values or priorities that we've held on to. There is a real tension that we feel because we want to be honorable to you. We want to be obedient to you. We want to be pure before you. And all of that comes from the right heart. But Father, I pray that you would help us with wisdom and with good conversation to begin to think about, are there ways that I need to move nearer to people who are far from you, right around me? People who I've given myself an excuse not to get to know. People who I've given myself an excuse not to engage with because I think they're making choices I wouldn't agree with. Give us the wisdom to see what Jesus did here as truly revolutionary as it was then. May it be equally as revolutionary to us now to see who Jesus engaged, how he engaged them, and why he did it. Father, give us the courage to do what we know we need to do with what we have just heard. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name.